Hey everyone, and welcome to episode number 11 of the Living Word podcast series. Before we start, do be sure that you have acquired the companion handout. It will help you keep track of what is happening on today's installment. Okay, so today we are going to be talking about the temptations of Jesus in the desert. This is the final element of preparation that Jesus undertakes prior to beginning his public ministry. And one of the reasons we cover it in this unit has to do with the revelatory element of the sequence. You know, after all, everything we've done in this unit has involved revelation in some way, whether it is to Mary, to Elizabeth, to Joseph, to the shepherds, to the wise men, to the people in the temple, etc., etc. However, in this case, Jesus is not revealing himself to family members, or to shepherds, or to temple elders, or to wise men from a faraway land. This time, he is revealing himself to none other than the father of sin himself, Satan. Now, I want to say this before we get into the nuts and bolts of this sequence. The temptations of Jesus have two layers. There's one about Jesus and how he handles them and what they signify, but they also are about us as fallen, sinful human beings. And as you listen to the events and what they signify, keep in mind that nearly every element is also speaking about us and to us. When you do the assignment associated with this particular episode, you need to concentrate on what the temptations mean to us even now. So we pick up the story right after Jesus has been baptized, and the Holy Spirit led him into the desert in order to fast for 40 days. Yeah, I know, 40 days is a long time. Uh, But as with so many other things, the fixation on the length of time takes away from what it means. Um, I've been doing this for a long time, and often I get asked, well, how does Jesus survive not eating for 40 days? And yes, when it says that he fasted for 40 days, it meant eating nothing, not like modern Catholic-style fasting of one meal plus a snack. Um, Normally, when I get asked this, my explanation is, it's Jesus, and I sort of leave it at that. So the deeper meaning of Jesus' time in the desert, along with the temptations, because they sort of work hand-in-hand here, is that it is meant to be a callback to the 40 years Israel spent wandering the desert. But there's one huge difference. Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. And if you think about it, Israel had to wander the desert for 40 years precisely because they tested God, grumbled against God, and sinned against God. The whole purpose of the 40 years was essentially a gigantic purge of the sinful elder generation who couldn't be bothered to show any gratitude whatsoever after being freed from Egypt and being formed into the chosen people. And if you tie the sequence of the fasting and the temptations to what we had finished this week doing, that is Jesus' baptism, you actually have the entire sequence of the exodus to the promised land played out. But with, or I should say, rather than a bittersweet ending, of having a whole generation knocked off before the younger generation entered the promised land, you have a positive ending here. So in some sense, Jesus is undoing 
the damage of previous generations while giving, and this is important, uh, giving a demonstration on how to handle adversity. So it is in this state of fasting for 40 days that Satan first appears to Jesus. Um, Just so you are aware, I am following the sequence that is found in the Gospel of Matthew. And it is here that one of my absolute favorite lines in the entirety of Scripture shows up. And quite honestly, it is as close to a throwaway line as you will ever find in the Bible. Not that there are any throwaway lines, but it is as close as you're going to get to it. And it says that after 40 days of fasting, Jesus was hungry. That's it. Jesus was hungry. Really. Now, I know it's a deliberate understatement, but come on. Now, I, I've teased students over the years that most of them couldn't go 40 hours without eating. And God help you, if you're in a growth spurt, it might be closer to 40 minutes that you can go without eating. But anyway, obviously, after the 40 days, he would be hungry. And it is here that the devil makes his first approach by saying, if you are the son of God. Now, wait a minute. If? Obviously, he didn't pay much attention to the baptism uh, portion when the voice of God said, you are my beloved son. I guess it's possible, but more likely, Satan is trying to goad Jesus here. So he says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to turn into bread. Now, on the surface, this looks like it is completely about satisfying hunger. But what the temptation is really about is the attempt to push Jesus into using his power purely for material gain. To throw him off his mission. To throw him off the purpose for which he came. And for us in our day-to-day life, this is the temptation of materialism. That if we should push aside spiritual growth for things, for stuff, and you know as well as I do, if we had that kind of power, sure it might be bread today, but what's to stop us from making a pizza tomorrow? A magnificent feast the day after tomorrow? And why stop at food? Why wouldn't we just conjure up nice toys, fancy cars, big houses, piles of money? So what this comes down to ultimately is the temptation of, and there's this big word again, concupiscence, to take the shortcut, to take the path of least resistance. This is what the entire advertising industry is built on, whether we want to admit it or not. I mean, you guys have all seen it. Take this pill and magically lose hundreds of pounds. Use this cream and look 20 years younger. You know, every get-rich-quick scheme, every commercial that features... An attorney plays on this kind of defect of ours to get the most out of something while giving the least effort possible. Unfortunately, however, that is for Satan, Jesus didn't have such a defect. And that, that's something we'll talk a little bit more about later as well. And Jesus responds with a quote from the book of Deuteronomy. Man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, Jesus says this to Satan to remind him that we eat in order to live. That is, food is a means, not an end. You know, it's not the goal in life. But if we want to live spiritually, you know, food is about living physically, but if we want to live spiritually, we must abide by the word of God. The ancient Israelites in the desert forgot this. 
And as you might recall, they demanded manna and all other sorts of physical nourishment while neglecting the very law of God who gave them their freedom. The second temptation might be the most interesting of the three. So Satan more or less snaps his fingers and all of a sudden he and Jesus are standing at the very top of the temple in Jerusalem. You know, it plays out like one of those scenes you might watch in It's a Wonderful Life or A Christmas Carol, you know, at Ebenezer Scrooge, where the main characters and their guides, uh, they can't interact with the people around them. Now, what makes this temptation particularly interesting, at least to me anyway, is that Satan becomes downright philosophical, even to the point that he begins quoting scripture to Jesus. You know, Satan says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And this is where he tries to get deep. For as it is written, God will command his angels concerning you, and with their hands they will support you lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, the passage quoted by the devil is from Psalm 91. And for some of you, you may have actually heard these words in the song on eagle's wings, which is occasionally sung in churches. I'm not particularly a fan of it, but it is a fairly well-known entity based on that psalm. Now, the particular sin that this temptation signifies is the sin of pride and vanity. Satan is trying to tempt Jesus into using his special status as the Son of God to, how should I say, to call in a favor. To call in a favor to God to show the world that he indeed is the Son of God. Now, to be sure, most of us might well fall for this temptation. Many of us like being the center of attention, although I guess there are some exceptions. But even if you don't like being the center of attention, what you do like is control. And if you remember back to the fall, when we talked about pride concerning Adam and Eve, it wasn't just about trying to go above and beyond our status as creatures, because that's what the temptation was, to be like God, but it is also about being able to control what God could and should do. You know, once again, Satan miscalculates here with regard to Jesus, who responds, Yes, but it is also written, Thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test. Putting God to the test would fall under that second element of pride the need to control uh, everything and all things surrounding us. The line, you know, I shall not put the Lord thy God to the test, is also from Deuteronomy, just as the previous one about, about bread after the first temptation. Why that's important is the usage of the words from Deuteronomy ties in further the notion that Jesus was able to succeed where ancient Israel had failed. Some of you may know this, some of you may not, but Deuteronomy, as a book in the Old Testament, was a collection of Moses' final warnings to the younger generation of Israel prior to their entrance in the Promised Land. And the warning was not to repeat the mistakes of their elders, of their ancestors. But a whole generation had been wiped away because they couldn't control their base desires and their sin. 
And really, Satan was looking and counting on history to repeat itself during these times. You know, how little did he know? So with two temptations failing, Satan moves on to his final attempt. Once again, snaps his fingers, and suddenly he and Jesus were on a mountain, and Satan comes off like a game show host. Have you ever watched Let's Make a Deal? Whether the current Wayne Brady edition or the older edition with Monty Hall, Satan puts all of the kingdoms of the world on display, telling Jesus that he could have all of these things if he does one act to bow down and worship Satan. I mean, there's a catch. As you know, there's always a catch. So here you have Satan now getting down to brass tacks. There's no fake concern for Jesus' hell. There's no pretenses for being philosophical. This is just a straightly naked pursuit of power. This is the deal with the devil. No, you sell your soul and you get whatever, but the catch is you always forfeit eternity to gain something temporarily. You know, power is temporary. And giving everything up, you know, including your dignity, including your soul, is ultimately eternal. You know, the bill comes due. And this is something we've also seen in a lot of our pop culture as well. In our literature, if you've ever read the book Dr. Faustus, you know, the idea of a Faustian bargain. Um, if you've seen the Disney movies like Hercules with Meg or The Little Mermaid, you know, Ariel gives away her voice and ultimately her soul, make her human for however long time it was, three, three days, I guess. Um, and we've even seen this in real life, you know, like you know, Nick Foles winning the Super Bowl. Okay, I kid, I kid on that. I mean, I'm sure you guys can appreciate that. Me being an Eagles fan, that you know, I'm willing to say that Nick Foles sold his soul to the devil. But you know what? I'm okay with that. So anyway, just as Satan is shown to be down to his bare essentials, so too is Jesus, who without missing a beat, basically yells at Satan to get away from him. You know, to wit, away with you, Satan, for it is written, The Lord your God shall you worship, and him alone shall you serve. And just like that, Satan is gone, and it is just Jesus all alone in the desert, with angels coming in to minister to him. So now the question is, what does all of this mean? There are two things I'd like to point out here. One is that Satan shows his abject stupidity in dealing with Jesus. And when I say stupidity, I do not mean poor intelligence. I mean, obviously, Satan is an intelligent being. But what I do mean is the devil was so blinded by his own self-regard that he couldn't figure out either Jesus' identity, and he also couldn't figure out that his enterprise of trying to tempt Jesus was doomed from the start. You know, Jesus is not like us in the sense of sin. You know, we can be tempted. We might resist. Other times we will fall into the temptation. But what sets Jesus apart is that he is and was even incapable of being tempted. So Satan should have known better, but he didn't, and as a consequence, looked like a fool. However, he did learn an important lesson from this. Never again 
do we see Satan attempting to take Jesus head on? Anytime he wanted to get to Jesus, he would attack those around him. You know, we will see these temptations play out in other forms at various junctures through the events of Jesus' ministry. So over the next two to three months, we will see instances of this happening. So, and when they come up in the future, I will certainly be pointing them out to you. The second is that final line in this particular set of passages in Matthew chapter 4, talks about the angels coming to minister to Jesus. This is important in the sense of drawing a distinction to what we saw with the devil. Angels were created to serve. The devil, as many of you know, had once also been an angel, but he lost his place in heaven due to his own pride. He wanted to be the master rather than the servant. He wanted to be God rather than an angel. And this is partly at the root of that final temptation with the kingdoms. He can control the world, but he cannot control God or the heavens. And so when the angels come to serve and minister to Jesus, they are demonstrating their proper purpose. And that's why it's put right after the temptations of bowing down to Satan. You know, that distinction should not be missed. So now the stage is finally set for Jesus to enter his ministry. He has passed the test, as if there were any doubts. And with nothing else in the way, his appearance in Galilee as a teacher and a miracle worker can finally begin. So I will conclude by saying it's truly amazing how a mere 13 verses within Scripture can be so full of meaning and significance. I mean, they tell us both about the nature of Christ himself, plus our own fallen nature. I know this was a bit of a longer episode and a deeper dive into the topic, but what I hope has happened is you picked up a few things. Um, And it's certainly going to come back to play a few times, as I've said earlier. So with that said... We have reached the end of episode 11 of the Living Word podcast series. Be sure to follow the directions on the assignment. If you have any questions, please let me know. And I will see you next time.